Good morning. My name is Preston. If I don't know you, it's great to have you all here today. I'm the associate pastor, and we are continuing on in our uh, series on the Sermon of the Mount. On the Sermon of the Mount, we'll be here for quite a long time. Right now, we're going through the Beatitudes, and we keep asking the question: What is the good life? What is human flourishing? Um, what is it that humans are meant to seek after in this one life that we've been given? And there are many different answers to this question, aren't there? People have been trying to answer it for a very long time. And it's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's Christianity's answer to the good life. What does it look like? Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about that. What is your answer to this question? Who comes to mind when you think of someone who is living as a human being fully alive, who's living the good life? Think of someone. It'll help you get a sense of your own definition of what this means. And keep this in mind. We'll keep revisiting this topic uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the sermon is a vision that Jesus is giving us of what life looks like in the kingdom of God, a vision of what we look look like as Christ transforms us from the inside out as he dwells in us and with us. And this vision appears in stark contrast to most of the visions of flourishing that we see and find in our world. And especially in the, in the Beatitudes, as we go through these one by one, uh, we'll find there's no overlap between flourishing in, in the world, in the kingdom of man, and in the, in the kingdom of God, in the Beatitudes. It's not a Venn diagram, you know, where there's some overlap where you can put yourself right in the middle and find yourself flourishing according to Jesus and according to the world around us. Jesus calls the poor, and the mourning, and the hungry, and thirsty, and those who are persecuted. He calls all these people blessed in his kingdom. And remember, as we keep saying this word blessed, we have to remind ourselves of what Jesus meant by it. Uh, It's really easy to get that confused. So blessed on on the lips of Jesus means you're in the kingdom. You have a substantial, durable happiness because you're close to the heart of God. It means you know the Father's delight over you, and therefore you're flourishing. Now, so far, we've looked at the poor in spirit and the mourners who Jesus says are blessed. And they are blessed because they know the heart of God, because they're in the kingdom. They have soft hearts and a radical hope in Jesus, which also means that the blessed folks don't really fit in in our current world because they're moving in a different direction. Uh, the, The blessed folks are always going to be homesick in a, in a sense. You remember when you were a child and you were homesick, you just wanted to be in your room with your toys and your mom and dad? Uh, the blessed folks are always homesick a little bit until they stand with God face to face. Today we go back to our imagery of the wells in the desert. If you're going along and you find a well, first it doesn't look like much. It's a dark hole in the ground. But if you go into it, if you reach into it, you find living water. And each of these beatitudes is like a well. At first it not, might not look like much. But if we go down into it and and plumb its depths, we find the living water that Jesus offers. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek today, for they will inherit the earth. Now, if Matthew 5, 4, which what we talked about last week, the state of mourning is maybe the least desired in in our time, It's not a popular message to pursue mourning. 
Uh, I think Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, is maybe the least understood. We don't really get that word. Now, before we get to what it means, remember these are declaration promise statements. The declaration then is that the meek are blessed. They are blessed. They are flourishing. And the promise is that they will inherit the earth. The promise explains the declaration. It sheds light on it. How are the meek blessed? They will inherit the earth. It's just that simple. So again, let's think through this carefully together and ask, who are the blessed meek? Why are they blessed? And how do we become blessed meek? If you're paying attention, you might notice a pattern of how we're doing this each week. First, who are the blessed meek? Well, this word is notoriously difficult to define. Meek. Does anyone know what meek means here? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't either until a couple weeks ago. Um, Apparently, lots of people are confused about what meek means. Um, If you find yourself confused and you went to Google meek, it probably wouldn't help you very much. I did that this week a couple times, um, particularly Google imaging meek, and you'll find an interesting mix mash of pictures. There's lots of content about Meek Mill, who's an American rapper, um, which I learned some things about, like he's a social advocate for prison reform, who knew? Uh, There's also lots of pictures of lambs and green pastures, and then there's lots of Christian clip art trying to define what Meek means, uh, like this one, that was my favorite. Uh, But unrelated to Meek Mill in today's world, I think uh, Meek overall has a pretty negative connotation. People don't necessarily like thinking of themselves as meek. William Barclay uh, comments, comments about it like this. He says, nowadays, meek carries with it the idea of spinelessness and subservience and mean-spiritedness. It paints the picture of a submissive and ineffective creature. Just what we're all aspiring to be, right? Submissive, spineless, and ineffective. <laughs> Blessed are you. <laughs> is that what Jesus is saying? Well, let's think about it. There's good reason many people are attempting to work out what Jesus is trying to say and the other biblical authors who who recommend being meek. Because we have this negative connotation, but we also have Jesus saying that he is meek. And we have Paul saying meekness is one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. There it's sometimes translated gentleness, which some of you may even like less than meek. So we really need to figure out what this, what this means. I think, I think it'll be helpful if we at first try to clear out some of the underbrush in our minds about what meekness is not. So what, what, is, not, what is not meekness? Let's start there. Meekness isn't a personality trait. It's not a natural disposition. Um, it doesn't mean you're an introvert or you're quiet or reserved. That's, it's, not a, it's not a way of um, a natural personality. It doesn't mean you're easygoing or conflict avoidant either. The meek person isn't one who just goes along with others' ideas or suggestions because they don't want to have an argument or a difficult conversation. Meekness also isn't being nice, even. It doesn't mean you're personable or you're easy to get along with. And as the, as the clip art suggested, meekness doesn't mean weakness of character. It's not the person who is afraid to speak up in a room out of fear of rejection or lack of confidence to raise, like they won't raise their hands and talk. That's not meekness either. So it's not being quiet. It's not kindness. It's not weakness. What is it? 
Well, Numbers 12 tells us Moses was more meek than all the people on the face of the earth. Moses, this great prophet who defied Pharaoh, who led the people of Israel out of Egypt, who met with God face to face on top of a mountain and gave them the law. Moses, this mighty leader and prophet, the meekest man on earth. In the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, one of his young mentees who was leading a church in Ephesus, uh, Timothy is in a heated debate and, and struggle with some people in the church. And Paul advises Timothy to correct his opponents in meekness so that God may lead them towards repentance. Now, these examples show us that meekness is not incompatible with strength, but it does say something about how we use, how we deal with conflict, how we use our strength, how we, how we approach other people. So what is it? Well, the Beatitudes give us a coherent picture of Christ-likeness. They all overlap. They all kind of tell us the same thing from a different angle. So let's start there, the Beatitudes we have already looked at. The blessed meek are poor in spirit. They know their poverty before God. They know they bring nothing to the table. And uh, they know none of their good deeds or their successes or anything they can offer earn God's favor. They get that. The blessed meek are mourners. They're able to see the depravity in their own soul. They're able to grieve that, and they're able to grieve the things around them in the world that grieve God's heart. The blessed meek, then, they have an accurate picture of themselves before God. The meek person is grounded on God, and they really don't need the praise or approval of other people. They aren't worried about it. They aren't worried about whether their name is being exalted and praised by other people, and they can let it go when they're wronged, when they're talk talked poorly of, or when they're hurt, because their feet are firmly planted on the creator of the universe, who knows their name. They're grounded there. Their lives with other people reflect this disposition. Their strength comes from the Lord, which frees the meek person to be indifferent, in a sense, to any human power they hold or praise they receive. So whether, they're, whether they have a position of power, whether they're spoken well of by other people, or whether they don't have any power and they're spoken poorly of by other people, it's not, it's not the defining thing about the meek person. It doesn't go to their heads or it doesn't put them in self-pity because they don't use their power for their own advantage. They submit both of, both of their pain and their strength. They submit it all to God and let him speak the first word over them. Here's another quality I think that can help identify the meek for us. What do you do when someone hurts you? Are you, are you free from vengeance? Are you free from grudges? Ask yourself this. Do you keep score when you've been wronged by someone? Do you try to find ways to get people back for what they've done for you? Or do you harbor quiet resentments behind a smile? The meek people don't have to do this. They don't need to. They're free from that because they know who they are before God. Again, they're grounded there. And with Paul, the meek person can say, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The meek person knows that their strength comes from the filling of God in them. So there's a firm-footedness of the meek in relation to other people. 
They don't need to retaliate when they're wronged. They can leave that up to God. They're free to. And maybe the greatest Christian thinker of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this series of children's fantasy novels about a mythical place called, called Narnia. Some of you may have heard of it. And Lewis charged this world, he filled this world with deep truths about our own world. Sort of like what Jesus does with parables. He brings us into this world and lets us see things and then we see our whole lives in a different way. Lewis has an amazing way of doing this with these children's stories. And he gives us a picture of how the meek handle power. He introduces the reader to a mighty, ferocious lion who strikes fear in the hearts of all the beasts and men alike. He towers over all the other creatures. Yet when little children have an encounter with this mighty lion, they have a surprising experience. They ask a friend, Mr. Beaver, what the lion is like. Is he quite safe, said Susan? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The great lion is a picture of meekness. He's not safe, but he's strong and mighty. But he's good. And he's gentle, too. He's, he's very gentle. He's gentle enough to let Lucy and Susan climb up on his back and hold onto his mane and ride. The lion is strong, but he doesn't use his strength and power to oppress other people and to get his way. He doesn't lord it over people. He doesn't throw his weight around. The lion is not overly impressed with himself either. He's not argumentative. He's not vengeful. He's meek. Now, Lewis's lion is meant to point us to Christ. So now let's return to Scripture together and look directly at what, Je at what Jesus can show us about being meek. I want to look at three quick snapshots of Jesus' life from the last week of his life before the cross. And I think they help us see what meekness is in human form. First, Palm Sunday. It's coming up in just a few weeks. Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, declaring that he is a king of peace. He rides a donkey, not a war horse. And he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah from long ago, foretelling that a king would come and ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and that this king would be meek. Now, for the many Jews who were expecting the Messiah to come and to overthrow the Roman powers, to establish Jerusalem and, and, and uh, Israel back to their former glory days from under King David, this would have been a huge disappointment. This isn't what they were looking for. But Jesus was not the least bit worried about that, about living into other people's expectations for him. He wasn't worried about it because he was focused on one thing. He was focused on his mission of doing the will of his father, of obedience to God. He was free from all that because he knew who he was before his father. And the, meek, the meek Jesus, he does something interesting, right? From riding the donkey in, he goes straight to the temple. Matthew 21 tells it like this. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
One commentator suggests the person who is meek is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Now, Jesus knew perfectly how to balance these two. With the crooks in the temple who exploited people, he was angry and he responded likewise. But with the blind and the lame who came to receive healing, to come to meet him, he was gentle. Number two, Jesus stands trial. Matthew 27. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus is accused falsely. He's slandered. He's spoken poorly of. He's cursed before others. And he doesn't say a word. Why not? It's not because he's afraid to speak up or raise his hand and talk. No. He's grounded. Again, he knows the Father delights in him, and he knows he's acting in obedience to God's will. He's focused on that. He didn't need to try to defend himself. It didn't matter. He knew it wasn't going to do anything anyways. He, he saw who he was before God in that moment, the Father. Number three, finally on the cross, after the soldiers have driven nails through his hands and his feet, and Jesus hung innocently to die, what does he say? Luke 23, 24, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive who? Forgive all those people who unjustly accused him and were responsible for his death and put him on the cross and drove nails into his hands? Yeah, that's right. Forgive those people. Not a trace of vengeance or malice in Jesus, even at the point of death. How can Jesus look at those who crucified him with forgiveness in his heart? That's insane. How can he do that? Again, because he's grounded on the Father, he can leave his vengeance in the only hands who can carry out vengeance with perfect justice. God alone. He can leave it there. He can leave it to God. Okay, this is a picture of the meek. Now let's move on to the next step. Why are the meek blessed? The meek are blessed because they will inherit the earth. Well, what is this about? What is Jesus meaning by they inherit the earth? It's simply this. If you spend your life trying to take possession of the earth, to gain it all, to live the good life, where you are at the center of things and anything and anyone is a means to the end of your satisfaction, you're going to miss it. You're missing the point. You can't do it because it all belongs to God. Psalm 37 helps us understand what Jesus means. Jesus quotes this psalm for this beatitude. We read it earlier. The psalmist says those who are like that, who try to be like God and center everything and everyone around themselves, the psalmist says, they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Those who spend all of their time trying to make a name for themselves, they're going to miss it because the earth belongs to the Lord and everything in it. It's his. The meek, they aren't fooled by this. They don't try to gain the world this way. 
They know, they, they know it's foolishness and they know it all belongs to God and they're content with that. They're okay with that. They're not concerned about achieving the good life as is defined by modern day Vancouver or anywhere else. They don't need to make a great name for themselves. They don't need to justify themselves before others. They don't even need to seek vengeance for when they're wronged. Why not? Well, this beatitude promises something amazing. It is the meek, actually, who with open hands, who aren't the ones trying to take hold of it. It's the meek with open hands who will inherit the earth from God. The earth is God's temple. It's his house. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, God says to Isaiah the prophet. It all belongs to God. It's all a part of his dwelling and it's all meant for worship to him. And he's promised one day to purify this temple, just like Jesus came into Jerusalem and purified the temple. He's promised to come back and purify his temple of the heavens and all of the earth. He's going to come and cleanse it and restore it and remake it into a new heavens and a new earth, just as it was always intended to be. And then do you know what he's going to do? He's going to give it all away to his kids because he's a good father who loves his children and loves giving good gifts to those who follow him. The meek don't have to fret about achieving their best life now because they're following after Jesus and their heirs to this promise. This is why the meek are blessed. This is why they don't need their name at, at the top of the list in number one spot. Because they have their name in the only place that matters. They have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And they're heirs to the kingdom where God is the king and God is their father. It's the promise of a future inheritance, yes. But for the meek, it's a special blessing to them because this promise weighs heavily on their, on their current life here and now. See, all these good things, they already belong to the meek because they know their heavenly father. They know he's trustworthy. They know that he delights in them and that he has good things in store. They're not stricken with worry. They're not caught up in the rat race. As Psalm 37 tells us, the meek have abundant peace. They delight in the Lord. They can be still before God. They're not worried when evil succeeds and when it seems like those who do evil are the ones getting all the things in this world as it often looks like. The meek, they're not worried about it because they can rest in the favor of their God. Now we get to the hard part always. How do we become meek? How do we journey down this road of blessedness? How do we become the blessed meek? How do we set our faces forward on this narrow path that avoids self-righteousness, this chasm on one side, and self-pity, this chasm on the other? How do we become like the Apostle Paul who could say, I know what it is to have nothing and I know what it is to have plenty, but I've learned the secret in any and every circumstance of contentment. I know whether in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or hungry, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. How can we get to this place to say such things? To have our affection so radically fixed on the kingdom of God that this is true of our lives. As with all of the Beatitudes, it's abundantly clear here that you can't fake this, can you? You can't force it. You can't even try hard enough or work at it long enough 
on your own to propel yourself into this way of life, to buckle down and do it on your own. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. So let me ask you this one question. Do you know that you're loved? I mean, really, do you know that you're loved? Do you know that Christ died for you out of love? That God himself died for you out of love that's greater than any human can possibly give? And do you know this not just in your head as, a, as an idea, but at the very core of your being, down in your bones, down in your heart? Now, if there's doubt or fear or questioning that arise into, up inside you when you contemplate this question, if your reaction is really anything less than a deep sigh of relief and an inner stillness because you do know the Father's delight over you, you're going to have a very difficult time growing in meekness. Why? Because meekness is incredibly vulnerable, isn't it? It's scary. It's letting go. It's saying, I'm not going to claim my power and my strength on my own, but I'm going to find my rest in God. It's saying, I'm not going to worry so much about what I deserve, about what people owe me. I'm not going to focus on that. And we won't be able to handle this vulnerability if we can't rest in the blessedness of knowing the Father's delight over us. That's what grounds the meek person. So really the only thing you can do is to take Jesus at his word. This is his word. Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened. All of you who are anxious, who are tired and burned, who are tired of worrying and trying to control it all and putting your name in that one spot, come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you that abundant peace. I'll give you that stillness of soul. Take my yoke upon you. Let go of the other ones that you're carrying. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Listen to me and follow me. Because guess what? I am meek. I'm humble in heart. I'm meek. I'm not going to use my power to lord it over you or manipulate you. I'm strong, but I'm safe. I'm strong, but I'm very, very good. I'm meek, and I'm humble in heart. When you do this, when you come to me, you will find rest for your souls. The meek have the rest and peace because they know the great shepherd. Not here, but deep in the inner core of their being. So open yourself to Jesus at this place, at the place where you're resisting him the most where you're holding your hands the tightest, where you're clenching the tightest, where you don't want to release them, open to Jesus there. Where you say, anything but this, don't touch this God. I need this for who I am to know myself. Jesus says, come to me here. I want it all. Allow him to lead you, even, and not even even, but especially where you don't want to go. It's in these places of submission to Jesus that we know his delight and we grow in meekness and we find rest for our souls.